can like trauma proof your kids. You can trauma proof yourself. I think when you get to that level of desperation, you start seeking lots of different things to try to feel better and to try to heal and to try to not be in so much pain. If you have an issue around feeling, there's some story from the past, some experience in your childhood usually, where feeling wasn't safe, it wasn't a good idea. The story I learned when I was little is if I go into my feelings and I feel my feelings, I will then feel helpless, alone, stuck. What up, weirdos? Welcome back to another episode of Oh High Self. I'm your host, Sandra Possing. I'm not going to list off all the many things that I am this time because we're keeping today, we're keeping my part of today snappy because today I'm bringing you a guest that I'm really, this is just selfish more than anything. I am just so excited to learn from my guest today. Um, and then I also would like to always share what I'm learning with all of you. So here we are. My guest today, who will introduce or who will allow to speak here in a moment, <laughs> her name is Heidi Rogers. And she is a, by way of very brief bio, a psychotherapist, counselor, and speaker with 20 years experience in mental health with a focus on trauma therapy. Also, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here to chat to you and to see your face after such a long time. So Heidi and I go way back. We, uh, we went to high school together and we had not actually spoken since high school until like last week when we just got on the phone and chatted real quick about this episode. But um, we had some serious catching up to do and we like only did a little bit of it because I was like, we need to actually just save this for the recording because your story is so good. So what I'm going to do basically is just have Heidi just tell us her story. And um, from there, we'll kind of pull out some of the main things that I want to bring to you guys today. But just so a little, little bit about do you know what's coming? Um, one of the main reasons I brought Heidi on here is I've been kind of following her work from afar. And I'm very interested in trauma, especially. And I know that a lot of people in my audience are parents. Um, I am not a parent and I cannot speak to that from lived experience. And so I'm wanting to bring trauma and parenting and some other things in from people who are experts and who are totally in that lane. So that is Heidi. Give us a little whatever you want to share personally, professionally about your story. So in my early 20s, I went through um, the dark night of the soul, the uh, depressive, uh, painful, horrendous uh, experience that a lot of people go through at some point in their life where your world sort of falls apart and everything comes crashing down. And that was when I had my first experience of attending therapy as a client uh, because I didn't want to be here anymore. And my world was horrendous. And um, I think when you get to that level of desperation, you start seeking lots of different things to try to feel better and to try to heal and to try to not be in so much pain. And so where I started was therapy. And that was eye-opening, I guess, because a lot of times you don't realize you don't know what you don't know and you have blind spots and you don't realize that you have blind spots. And uh, you think, doesn't everyone think that way? And didn't everyone grow up like that or you know, have those experiences or feelings? And then you kind of start to unpack, no, that's not actually what is the universal experience or that's not how everyone thinks. And so uh, therapy was kind of this amazingly cool uh, experience and I guess sort of planted the the seed that this is maybe something I wanted to do uh, down the track. And fast forward then, that's exactly what happened, that therapy saved my life and therapy um, just made me realize that there is this insane world of change that was possible that I didn't realize you could actually like transform yourself and transform lots of beliefs and lots of things about your, I just, I had no idea that that was actually like possible. 
but living it and doing it then kind of made me go, oh my gosh, this is so amazing for me. I want other people to have this experience because um, saved my life. And so I, obviously I think anything that, you know, you could put on with a sentence like that of saying that saved my life, you get very passionate about whatever that is, right? I mean, some people are the same way about yoga. Some people are the same way about, you know, I don't know, essential oils, like whatever it is. If you're passionate about it, you want to share it with everyone. Yeah. So I then went um, and did a million years of, you know, college and uni and um, masters and just was in school for what seemed like forever. Uh, and then started working in as a therapist, but mainly in like generalist sort of stuff and broad. And then that's when I started to, I learned a little bit more about trauma because I worked in a sexual abuse team um, in a public, in like the public sector. And that kind of, I just had no idea about just trauma in general. I, I didn't understand um, how many people are impacted by it. I didn't know any of the, I don't know. I just, I think most people, you don't know. Why would you know the stats? You don't know the stats on that when you're not in the sector. And then that sort of got me going wow, uh, I didn't realize I had experienced trauma. I think a lot of people often, when I see them in private practice, when they tell me a story about their life or whatever, and you know, I kind of look at them like, whoa, that was, that was intense. And then when, if I put the label of trauma on it and I say something like, have you ever thought about that as actually traumatic? You know, a lot of times people are like, nope, I just thought that was my childhood, you know, or whatever. But then what I started to realize in doing, working in trauma for such a long time was how preventable it was. And that was also something, well, I wasn't taught in school, but also something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that you can like trauma proof your kids. You can trauma proof yourself. You know, you can, there's a lot of stuff that you can do to prevent things from getting to such a level of trauma. It doesn't have to be inevitable. Like, you know, the saying, um, yeah, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. That was the piece that I sort of learned in my, as I was beginning my career and working in trauma was, oh, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't actually have to be this way. If what I started to see with my adult clients, it was like, if I had just met your parents, like when you were too, or if I had met your parents when you were still in your childhood, I might have been able to like interweave, you know, in there and help them parent you differently or validate or empathize or just show up for you differently so that where you are today, we didn't need to get to this point. Like I if if me or someone else had been able to give your parents the tools um and the understanding that might have changed than the trajectory of your whole life. So like one example say would be with um, abuse. If a kid is being abused or bullied, if they have a close connected relationship with their parents, uh, there's a greater likelihood research shows us that they will disclose or they will tell their parents what's going on. Obviously telling the parents means that the abuse can stop and they can feel um, supported and validated, right? But if the parents, say, have a disconnected relationship, if the parents are often shaming the child, um, punishing the child, if they're kind of creating distance in the relationship, then obviously the kid's not going to come to them when something is happening, um, especially something that's shameful. Uh, they're not going to go to the parent. So do you see what I mean? Like there's, there's ways that you can kind of um, set yourself up, set your relationship up so that if your child is having a problem or something, they can come to you. So that's that bit sort of around trauma and stuff. And then I guess 
uh, after doing the trauma work for a while, that is what then got me into doing parenting stuff. And then sort of the evolution of that was realizing then in parenting that there's this huge demographic of kids who are like deeply misunderstood. And, you know, the rest of the world calls them the naughty kids, the bad kids, the troublemakers. Um, I call them spicy. I, I call them the, you know, the strong will challenging kids. I prefer to call them spicy because I think it's just kinder and it's just more appropriate. But, and then the acronym SPICY, I have like a framework around of how to work with these kids or adults. Um, and then that is then where I started working more with schools and teachers because it's the tricky kids in a classroom, you know, that make it hard for the teacher and for the other kids to learn. And then I started working a lot with those teachers and then working with parents who have spicy kids. And then that has evolved then into working with, uh, a lot of the neurodivergent population because a lot of spicy kids tend to be, uh, uh, autistic or ADHD or anxiety or OCD or have something going on where they're just differently wired. And that's why their emotional um, behavioral experience is also different. Um, yeah. So that's the, the two, the two minute version of how I've ended up here and why I have like an interest in all of those sort of things. And when you initially started doing therapy yourself, was it like traditional talk therapy or do, do you remember exactly what kind of therapy it was since there are a few different variations? Yeah, yeah, CBT. Yeah, when I when I went to school and then was studying, you know, like in counselor school, uh, therapy school, I uh, reached out to my old therapist um, and said to her, like, so what were we doing? What modality was that? You know, and she's like, oh, it was mainly CBT and a little bit of ACT and a little bit of, um, you know, just she named all the different modalities, which is funny because I don't, I don't do a lot of that. Like, I don't. CBT is kind of. Uh, I don't want to say poo-pooed, but it's a little bit down the list of cool modalities in terms of therapy. So yeah, I don't really do much CBT for ther- for trauma stuff, but it's, it's a foundational part. Like you need to have CBT in any kind of therapy, but um, it's, yeah, there's way, there's others that are way better, that are way cooler for trauma. Yeah. And CBT for anyone who's not familiar is cognitive behavioral therapy. What are, what is ACT? Uh, acceptance commitment therapy. So the the fundamental difference is because the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive meaning thinking, and the the premise, like if someone said, what's CBT in a sentence? It's that your thoughts lead to your feelings, which then lead to your behavior. And I don't believe that. I think it goes the other way. I believe in what's called a bottom-up approach, which is my body gets the sensations, the the messages from my environment or my past or whatever. So I feel whatever I feel that then makes me think what I think. So I don't really have as much choice over thoughts and mindset as we think it's a feeling starts first. So you have to first go to the body. So I think it's in the body that a lot of our issues come from or like regulation or anxiety or whatever it is, instead of starting at the top with your brain and going, I need to just change my thoughts and get my mindset straight. No, I believe it's the other way. You need to regulate your body first, get your body feeling safe, get your body feeling um, compassion. And then that in turn is what enables you to shift the way that you think. Mm-hmm. And, and the CBT model has been very popular in the personal development world for a long time too. So for a long time, that's very much what I was leaning into too. That's like all what my mentors and teachers were often teaching. And it's only really the last few years that I've been like, huh, 
this does not feel <laughs> complete. You know, it's like one, one way that it can happen. And there's so many other ways that it can happen. And our bodies are such a huge part of it, which is why I'm so interested in all the somatic types of modalities. One thing I often realize, like, with, so with clients that come to me, for example, um, like I live in two worlds. I live in like a very kind of normal mainstream world, mostly like where I'm at physically. And then in my online world, it's like spiritual entrepreneurs and people who are into every possible alternative modality and all the like latest hot stuff. And so my way of kind of like living in both worlds is that, you know, try to learn a lot about both. And I've realized that um, a lot of like my spiritual entrepreneur type of colleagues, they're down for anything. They'll try all the newest stuff. They're like very open to all of it. But a lot of people in kind of, let's call it like, traditional mainstream world, you know, you tell them like, yeah, like, um, these different modalities that work with your body or like Reiki or somatic or breath work, or I don't know, rage therapy or all these different things that involve your body. And a lot of them are like, mm, that's nice. Okay. Never going to fucking do that. Absolutely not. Like I might put it on my list for 10 years from now, but realistically not going to happen. And so a lot of them kind of do better starting with more basic, almost like the CBT type of model can be like an entry point into recognizing that they have any agency at all over what's going on in their mind, even though if it's technically body mind first and not necessarily thoughts, feelings like it used to be taught, but it's like even recognizing that there's some possibility to do reframing and to like be more aware of their thoughts and then change the stories and change the narratives and like have more awareness and have it go down from there. That's like phase one, you know? And then beyond that, I feel like that's when people sometimes become more open to all this more what feels not even woo woo, but just like weird for a lot of people. They're like, um, I'm going to not lay on a massage table and like scream out loud at my therapist while they try to get me to get my emotions to get all unlocked out of my hips. I'm sorry, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, Oh, but it's, so, you know, there's so many things happening in that world now. And a lot of people are just not open to it yet. And I hope that's changing quickly. And that this is part of the reason why I'm stoked to bring people like you on and be like, even the things that I was still teaching up until quite recently, I'm like, actually, no, this is not the full picture. And it might actually be completely wrong. So I want to learn as much about all the different ways, but also learn how to teach it in a way that's like, very accessible to folks who are um, not as open to those things yet. I mean, I completely agree a 1000% with everything you said. And I too, used to love me some CBT shit in sessions. Like we would do thoughts and feelings charts and log books and like home written homework. Like I used to be all up in CBT at the beginning of my career. And I think most therapists start there because that's what how we're trained. And like when you're starting, you don't know what you're doing. And so you just, you rely on what you've learned at, at school. But then where my real learning came from is all of these books. Like it was reading outside of um, my university stuff, that is where I learned everything, like as far as trauma goes, um, as far as how to work with clients better. Uh, all of that stuff was all after I had a degree in my hand, you know, which is sad, but like, that's a whole nother conversation about the educational system. But anyway, the, the biggest thing I think with trauma is w in terms of in relation to what we're saying is what Clients will often say to me when they start, when I ask, like, have you had therapy before? And they'll say, um, yeah, like around when the trauma happened, say I had a little bit of therapy then, uh, or I've done this kind of therapy, that kind of therapy. But most of the time when people see me for trauma stuff, they have already seen a therapist, but the, the language that they'll use is something like, 
but I've not really gotten any better or I still have flashbacks or uh, I still am really afraid of driving or whatever. And so they're kind of stumped as to like, why is it still bothering me? Or why do I still have panic attacks with blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, because you've just been hanging out up here in your brain. You've not done any of the body stuff. And they're like, what do you mean body stuff? And I'm like, well, the trauma is stored in your body. The trauma is stored in your tissues and it, it lives in there. And people are like, huh? And then I'll usually give them, if they're into reading, I'll give them a list of a few books to like start to just expand your brain. And just it's like a whole nother world. It's like a whole nother planet when you start to learn how the body is impacted just in general or how much it's more like the body. Um, one of my supervisors said, says to me all the time, the body knows first and then it tells the brain via email. So it's quite delayed. So the body knows everything all the time and then it gets the message. The brain is like, you know, 24 hours late to the party in terms of understanding what's going on. But the irony is that we tend to listen to our brains more and think that that's truth and that's fact. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got to listen to your body. And that's also who you need to nurture, heal and support first is the body, not the mind. And we live in such a world that is, is um, you know, logical, rational, cognitive. Like we're, we're taught to think and make sense of the world through thinking. And none of us are taught how to listen to our bodies. We're not taught how to feel our feelings. We're certainly not taught how to interpret our body's physiological response to triggers and things. And so it just, it just makes more sense for people, I think, to be like, oh, well, it's just because of this thing that I'm thinking or, or, or this thing that happened. And we have no idea how quickly things are happening. Like a trigger happens or, you know, you, you walk by someone who's wearing a certain cologne and you have no concept of the fact that, you know, someone who did something to you a very long time ago smelled like that and it triggers a physiological response, but your brain is like, I don't know, just random dude with clone that doesn't mean anything. And so that we make ourselves bad and wrong. We don't realize that there's this entire chain of things happening in our bodies that's sending messages to our brain, but it's like at a level that's not even perceptible by our conscious mind. And then we, but then we try to consciously make sense of it and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think a big place I see this as a problem. I mean, I see this for everyone, but the disconnection from our bodies and the disconnection from our feelings, I see a lot with men and a lot of my male clients that there's a, you know, a lot of times when I will ask them about how do you feel about that? Or how did that make you feel? Just any sort of feelings question. The answer is almost a lot of the time. I don't know. And I'm like, okay, let's just take a minute. Let's, let's ask now. Let's, let's reflect on the question and your feelings and just notice what's happening in your body. As I ask you that question about when you think about when you went to the dentist last week and you had this procedure done, how did you feel? I thought this was yesterday. So this is fresh in my head with a client. And he was like, I don't know. I said, okay, just take, take a sit. So it's like the, the answer, I don't know, is more of a protective part of the brain that is trying to shield you often from feeling because usually if you have an issue around feeling, there's some story from the past, some experience in your childhood usually where feeling wasn't safe. It wasn't a good idea either because my big feelings are going to overwhelm me and the grownups around me don't know what to do with them or they shut them down or they shame me or they invalidate my experience. So the story I learned when I was little is if I go into my feelings and I feel my feelings, I will then feel helpless, alone, stuck, um, powerless, and afraid because my feelings will feel so big in my body because I'm a little person, right? 
that then goes through life. So then this client yesterday is telling me about how he has the dentist, uh, this dentist appointment last week. And it's a, they're pulling a tooth and it's a big kind of procedure. And um, he said to me, you know, afterwards, I was just knocked in bed for like five days. And I don't understand why I didn't, I took COVID tests. I wasn't sick. I didn't have any other like sore throat symptoms, but I was just knocked in bed for like five days. And I, I, in my head, I'm like, duh, but like, I don't say that cause that's rude, but I was like, mm-hmm. and so what, what was happening in the procedure? Like, how did you feel in the procedure? I don't know. Go through a few. I don't know. Dig, 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 dig. And ultimately he's like, I felt helpless. I felt powerless. I felt, um, afraid and uh stuck and um he used an interesting phrase it was something like um nobody to talk to about it or nobody would understand or something like that and i'm always so interested in language it's not an accident the words that our brain picks because it goes back to somewhere somewhere it's it's a specific reason our brain chose that word like yucky over gross versus disgusting or there's just it's interesting to pay attention to language anyway. And so I said, okay, so helpless, powerless, alone and scared. And he said, yeah. And I knew immediately, but I said, what do those words remind you of? What time in your life do those words fit? And he goes, he starts to cry. And he says, when I was 11 and my mom died. And I said, yeah, yeah. So that then led to this big emotional release because we made this connection for his brain, his body already knew, but we made this connection for his brain that when I feel helpless, powerless, stuck and alone in my big feelings, which is a a lot of times what the dentist is a lot of, by the way, side note, a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of trauma in dentistry anyway. um, And he goes, wow. And he was like, and then he goes, why am I crying about this? And I said, he's like, it was just the dentist. And I was like, but it wasn't just the dentist. And also I, the, what he was having done was fixing something, a big mouth, like injury he had when he was six. And I was like, dude, there's trauma from when you got the injury when you were six, that what did you do with it then? Did anyone hold you and let you cry and talk about your feelings about how painful your mouth was after being you know, hit in the face? Um, you had so many dental procedures like across your life. Like, have you ever thought about how scary that would have been as a kid to go through all that? And he was like, no. And I was like, it's all in there. So, and he's like, that's why I'm crying right now. And I was like, well, yeah, because it was all in there. It couldn't come out. It wasn't safe to come out then. And then you add on top of that, the experience of helplessness with your mom and all of that. And again, being alone in my big feelings and then you have an experience today that's the dentist, a fight at work with your boss. Uh, what like it doesn't even matter what this what the situation is. He could have had, you know, an ingrown toenail sorted out on his foot. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be his mouth, but any kind of experience that replicates the feelings and the sensations I have in my body is then what makes my whole brain and my nervous system go into. <gasps> remember the last time that this happened, that was bad. So we need to either fight, flight, freeze, or fawn to make this shit stop because that was bad then. We don't want to have this happen again. So then hence him being stuck in bed for five days is needing deep rest because the whole way that his brain perceived what had just happened was 
you know, just like in the 80s when this happened the first time kind of thing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, as you were describing all that, I kept um, thinking of the term protector parts. Like when something, and so tell me if this is accurate. Um, Like something, you're a little person, something happens that is traumatic in some shape or form. Somebody does something to you or something big or scary happens, either a loss or whatever it is. And are like, we get, we have some huge physiological, like like body response to an external stimulus of some kind. So our body freaks out. We feel a lot of emotions, but then like you were describing, it's not always safe to feel those emotions or maybe, you know, I don't know, we're like a sensitive little kid. Like I know I was, and I know a lot of empaths and sensitive folks were like, you know, basically emotionally trying to take care of their parents, which maybe we're struggling or whatever it is. Like it wasn't safe for you to just relax and feel and be comforted and things. And so then we go into maybe our fight or flight or fawn or freeze response. And these, it's like these little protector parts of ourselves are like, survival is the only thing that matters. And so we like, it's like we free, like we, our bodies literally get rigid to try to keep us safe. And we're putting on kind of whatever mental, emotional armor we need to do. But then since most of us don't have a way for people with whom to process or any process with which to process our uh, trauma or experience or feelings at that time, it's like, then we get like frozen in time. Right. And that's when, and I don't know the science behind like how it gets then stored in your tissues and your joints and things, but it's like, it's kind of like, so a little person that has that experience never really processes it then grows up to be an adult is walking around adulting and living their life. But it's kind of like they're like emotionally stunted and frozen at that age six or age five or whatever the thing happened, if it hasn't been properly healed, or maybe they, you know, grieved a couple times lightly in a way that was socially acceptable, but then they shoved the rest of it down. So is it, would it be fair to say that like, I don't know what percentage, but let's say an alarmingly large percentage of the people in the world who are adults are actually walking around in adult bodies, doing adult things, but with like, emotionally stunted, very immature, like, like, um, emotional, physiological, like nervous systems who that don't know how to self-regulate and that are storing a lot of processed or unprocessed trauma. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. A thousand times. Well, I think let's start first by defining trauma. Cause I think this is where a lot of people get, get confused. And so let's start there and then I'll, I'll break down a little bit of what you were saying. So first of all, Favorite definition of trauma. Most of the people think, most people think, I thought this when I started, you know, studying at university, um, that trauma was a, a someone trying to kill you. Like the trauma is only when your life is in danger. Yes, that is, that is considered trauma. But there's lots of people who have experienced um, attacks on their life, you know, people who are soldiers or whatever, and they don't feel particularly traumatized by certain situations. So why is that, you know, or why is it that, 200 people are on a plane that nearly crashes and three people get PTSD and the rest don't like, why is that? That some people are traumatized and some people aren't right. So first of all, favorite definition of trauma comes from Peter Levine and he is a guru in trauma land. He's probably one of the first that just crushed it. He got it. And he just started uh, experimenting with some hypotheses he had had about trauma being stored in the body. So Peter Levine is just, he's a guru. And his definition that I learned from him is um, trauma is any experience where you feel profoundly helpless or lose your ability to cope. And it's more about the, the after kind of experience around the trauma for a lot of people. A lot of clients will tell me it wasn't actually the abuse that was the worst part. The, the worst part was people not believing me or um, my parents blaming me or um, it's the later. That was the stuff that was traumatizing because I felt so helpless. 
But then obviously, of course, in the moment, helplessness, car accidents, um, assault, um, fires, you know, lots of different things. Okay. So that's trauma. When you then use that lens to look over your life and go, okay, when did I have experiences where I felt profoundly helpless? You go, oh, that's interesting. I actually have a lot of those examples. Huh. That's when my mom had cancer, when my parents divorced, um, when I had to change schools, uh, when those kids wouldn't play with me on the playground and I begged them. Like there's all of these little moments and then big moments or reoccurring moments that we've never kind of, I don't know, um, honored within ourselves that that was a really helpless experience and was very hard to cope with that. And obviously if stuff happens when you're a kid, it's very hard to cope with things because you're a kid and your nervous system isn't fully developed. Your brain isn't fully developed and big feelings feel big and overwhelming when you're little simply because you don't have the, the hardware yet to regulate and manage. You're driven predominantly by your amygdala, which is where the fight flight response comes from and not driven so much by your cortex. And the cortex is the part that regulates, calms you down, um, is more logical consequence, forward planning, reasoning, productivity, motivation. That's all from cortex. And cortex doesn't fully develop till 25 to 28. So you're predominantly driven and run by your amygdala the closer to zero you are. It's very primal. It's very basic, right? So then when you go, okay, so trauma is when you feel helpless. I actually don't have all of the hardware yet to regulate myself. I'm driven predominantly by my amygdala, which is very emotional and very primal and just all focused about safety and survival. You can see then how when a trauma occurs for a child, that it's very compartmentalized. It's literally like put over here, down the hall, and we don't go over there. Why? Because it's dangerous. Because when I think about that thing or go into my feelings, I then feel big feelings. I don't know what to do with them. Grownups don't know how to help me or the grownups are too busy or they have their own issue going on about this situation that they aren't available to help me through this. So the brain and the body sort of learn together. Whenever we think about that thing, or whenever we go into the feelings around that, it makes us feel worse. So let's not go there. Let's put it over here. Obviously, that doesn't work in time because we end up having issues with that thing that we put off to the side. It starts to come up. But what we don't realize is at that moment, the language I like to use is when the grenade went off. So for this client, I was just talking about um, when his mom died, that's when the grenade went off. So he, and he was, he was 11 when she got sick and then he was a little bit older when she died, but it's basically when she got sick that it started to kind of unravel, right? The learning then that he, this is, I think, helpful to use an example. So the learning then that he has at 11 is if I go into my feelings of helplessness about my mom dying, I don't like how that feels. When I try to talk to my dad about it, he's not helpful. He, he doesn't do anything about it. He kind of shuts it down. So then the feelings become like sort of like the emotional room in my brain is not helpful and it's a scary, unsafe room. So I'm going to close the door. But obviously... Being a human is a very deeply feeling experience. There's lots of emotions. There's lots of stuff that happens in our life. But because he closed that door at 11, rightly so. But to me, I'm like, bravo, brain, nervous system. You made the right choice at the time because 
you would have just basically been perpetually kind of traumatized if you just kind of kept going into your feelings and trying to feel the feelings it would have been destructive and you wouldn't have survived because you needed adult help to get through that time right but you didn't have it so the brain is super smart and it will go you know what this grenade has just gone off let's cut our losses let's just pause here in our emotional development and all of our peers are going to kind of keep growing up and they're going to keep emotionally evolving. But because we know that the emotional room is a real dark and scary room, let's just close the door and let's try to find other ways to manage our emotions rather than feeling them, thinking them, experiencing them. Let's just go with, I don't know, alcohol. Let's go with the drugs. Let's go with uh, workaholicism. Let's do that. Let's do yoga. Let's do basically like, let's just focus everything over here on other stuff. So I don't have to feel because remember the feelings room, bad, 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 bad room. And then yes, there are totally protectors who stand in front of that room, big bodyguards that have your face, but a very distorted body uh, that are very big and strong and intimidating and scary. And they stand in front of this door and anytime a little therapist or you know, a little, another voice in your head, a compassionate part, a curious part tries to go to the door and is like, hello, could I, could I please get in the emotions room? Could I, could I please get in the feelings room? You know, the protective part just goes, fuck off. No, no, no. I told you, don't try this again. You know, you go back to therapy. I'm going to hijack the whole thing. Okay. We need to keep that lady away. It's just this whole, uh, drive fueled by safety because the protector part is just saying, don't you remember that room is really dangerous? We, we can't do the feelings thing because it's really scary in there. Don't do your feelings. Just go into your thoughts. Thinking is a lot better and safer. Don't do the feelings thing, okay? They're, like, protectors always have really beautiful intentions. They just are trying to keep us safe, um, but they're stunting us. And so a great way to, to um, start getting curious about this, if, if someone is listening to this going, huh, I wonder if... When I got in that car accident when I was four, or I wonder if um, when my parents got divorced and it was a big, messy, ugly divorce when I was 13, I wonder if that has stunted me emotionally or impacted me emotionally. Yes, is the quick answer. But get curious about when I feel stressed, when I feel attacked, when I feel in conflict, when my, when my brain goes into that, I need to protect us, we're under attack, there's a threat, there's a threat. When I go into that state, what is my default? And so that's the sort of emotional stunting that you're talking about is the default. Can you learn other ways? Yes, but we all have a default and the default will go back to when the grenade went off. And it's usually the first one or the biggest one where I had that very profound sense of helplessness. That's the, that number, the age that goes with that is then how you know, ah, that's my default. So when I'm having an argument with my partner, when my boss is getting mad at me, when the, my kid's teacher is, I, I perceive as shaming or criticizing my parenting and I start to feel stressed, I know that because the, you know my mom got sick when I was 11, that is where I'm going to revert. So my brain is going to go into 11-year-old thinking. My brain's going to go into 11-year-old language. My brain is going to go into 11-year-old, 11-year-old behaviors. So that will look very immature. And a lot of times when I explain this to people about their partner, they're like, that's why I always say to him, you fight like such a teenager. You sound like such a juvenile, immature boy when we fight. And I'm like, yeah, because they're going back to 
the original, like the, the age that they stopped emotionally maturing. Does that make sense? That's who's talking right now. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, um, can you also briefly define the differences between fight, flight, freeze, and fawn? Because I think a lot of, probably in the mainstream, most people are somewhat familiar with the term fight or flight, but I think not a lot. Um, I feel like freeze and fawn have come into the mainstream lexicon more recently. Like I, for personally, for example, uh, as far as I can tell about myself, I'm pretty clearly a freeze response person. Like I will get triggered and then I will be consciously aware of the fact that I want to like, say, speak up about something or do a thing or um, set a boundary or react in any way possible. But I will just literally stand there with a blank expression on my face. And I'll be thinking to myself, Sandra, this is a great time to open your mouth and say something. And then my brain is like, I actually don't know how to make words come out of my mouth right now, but I will get back to you shortly. (laughs) Like a couple hours later, I might be able to circle back and do the thing. But then I've also realized through realizing how much of a people pleaser I was and and working through that, that maybe the fun response is that like a, we'll call that like second in line um, after the freeze response. But uh, I think both freeze and fun are much less well known. Yes. Yes. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it really helps people to notice, oh, that's why I always respond like that. Where does that come from? Oh, that comes from my childhood. It comes from how things were modeled for me as a kid of how to navigate stuff, right? So, and also fight a lot of times people don't realize um, is actually just anger. Like I think people think fight is like, oh no, I don't fight. Like I've never gotten a fist fight. I don't, you know, punch people. And I'm like, yeah, but do you verbally, you know, start shit? Do you verbally get cranky? Do you verbally um, say inflammatory things, you know? So the four responses are basically the brain's attempt, the nervous system's attempt to survive. And the annoying part is you don't choose. When you get into a stress response, and we can call it stress, we can call it anxiety, we can call it threat, but discomfort, uncertainty, lack of control, any of those words, which science tends to call stress is the overwhelming term that is usually used in literature. When the body or the brain perceive, operative word, not real threat, but perceive threat, and it feels stressed, it will pick fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Fight, usually in today's day and age, will manifest as uh, arguing, physically hitting, spitting, kicking, punching. Um, or more commonly, especially with adults, would be verbal, let's go, bring it, you know, like just confrontational, argumentative, aggressive. Uh, what'd you do that for? What's wrong with you? Just, yeah, ready to rumble, kind of like bring it, you know. Um, flight will be storming out of the room, feeling overwhelmed and walking away. Uh, when you think about it as animals too, I think that helps start help you to start to understand how it works because you think about how animals respond when they're under threat or being attacked or chased. And this is why I'm saying like you don't choose because your brain just takes over, unfortunately. So in the moment where you're say the gazelle is being attacked by the lion, it doesn't choose if it's gonna fight it, light it, fawn, or freeze. It's going to do what's the smartest in the moment. So depending on say the size of the lion, what if it's a baby lion or what if it's a cub, the gazelle might go, yeah, I can fight this. I'm going to kick it. I'm going to bash it with my head or whatever. Depending then on the size or the speed, or if they're, you know, ambushed might be smarter for me to run. I think I could outrun it. 
Yeah, I know where I am. Yep, it's all flat. Yep, I'm going to run. Freeze is basically shut down, play dead. A lot of animals play dead. And why? Because for some animals, in a predator sense, they get disinterested and they get bored. If the animal, if the, if the prey isn't live, if it's not the kind of fun cat and mouse game, well, now this is boring because you're dead and you're just laying there. <sighs> what else is there to do today? And then while they're looking around, bing, the gazelle hops up and runs away. So freeze is a very, very, very common response for children because of the power differential, the size differential that children intuitively inherently know. I can't fight you, grown up. I can't flight you. I can't outrun you. My best options are probably freeze or fawn. And so freeze is, is shut down basically and uh, a total drop in uh, awareness, I guess, in, in just kind of going very small and trying to look, just going very small and trying to, it's, it's I guess, play dead, but that sounds kind of dramatic in everyday life, but it's basically just going very small and blending in with the wall and not being noticed and trying to just not be uh, singled out. And then fawn is people pleasing. So that is the, whatever you want, whatever you want. Like if you were being mugged, you know, and the person says, give me your wallet. You know, if you go, sure, sure, sure. And do you want my coat? And do you want my phone? That's fawn of just whatever you want to make you happy. Cause I don't like us being in conflict and I don't like this distress. I'd be like, here, take my car. Yeah. I'll give you my address. You can go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And that is also very common for women because that's conditioned into us uh, from a really little age to be uh, delightful and to be people pleasers and to make everyone else comfortable. So a lot of times with women I work with, we talk a lot about fawn and freeze more often than fight and flight because that's usually not the go-to. And then also for people who have childhood trauma, uh, it's often that freeze and fawn will be the two that they gravitate towards uh, simply because if you found a tool that worked for you as a child and it got you through a really hard time, your brain just naturally goes, well, that worked. So let's stick with that. And it's like, yeah, but dude, that was when you were six or that was when you were 10. You had to rely on fighting or flighting or fawning or freezing. You had to rely on that then because you were five or you were 10. But like, dude, now you're 45 and we have a lot of other resources and options. There's other ways you can do things. You can talk about it. You can communicate what you want and need. Uh, you're allowed to have feelings. You can express your feelings. There's all these different options. But if you've not done any of this sort of curiosity and exploration about who am I, what am I, why do I think these things, then you just take that as the default. And so you just go, well, yeah, when I get stressed, I'm going to push back and I'm going to get mad at the other person for quote unquote, making me feel this way, or I'm just, it's too much, whatever, whatever. And I'm going to storm out or I'm going to go, Oh, sorry. Did I upset you? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. What can I do? What can I do to fawn and make you happy? Or I'm just going to go totally quiet and go, Oh, okay. Okay. And so sometimes when we are talking to someone or, you know, having a conflict with someone, we often don't know what's going on in their body. We don't know what's going on in their mind. We maybe can't tell uh, the, the cues of sort of what their body's communicating uh, with, you know, clenching a jaw, shoulders dropping, going out. There's all these, you know, breathing changes, all these different body cues you can sort of be looking for and, and understanding that then will tell you, oh, 
I can see it. And I, I mean, I see it a thousand times a day when I'm sitting with clients because I can tell when we start talking about something stressful or revisiting a painful memory, I'm watching their body so much and watching what they're doing. Their knees starts bouncing, their hands start clenching. And I can just go, oh, here we go. You know, we're, we're going into a stress response. And the, what the body wants to do is it wants to complete it. It wants to discharge that energy that was rightly um, mustered and motivated to fight or flight or freeze or fawn. It wants to finish it. It wants to complete the cycle. So let's say with a, a flight response, the body gets all this cortisol and all of this adrenaline ready to run or ready to fight. You know, everything gets sort of oxygenated and pumped up and everything gets big and ready to go. And then if either the fight doesn't happen or I get shut down or I get kicked out or I get sent to the principal's office or whatever, then where does it all go? And it just sort of still keeps cycling. And so allowing for opportunity for that stuff to release and to come out. So things like breath work are great. Uh, because that's how you can get the the stuff out. But the key for all of this, and you know this, is you have to start with awareness. You have to start with realizing either that's what's happening for the other person or that's what's happening for me. And I know, okay, my, like you just said, my go-to is fawn or freeze. And that's then how I know if I'm in a conversation with someone and I start noticing myself going into freeze or fawn, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling triggered, I'm feeling overwhelmed or whatever. And then likewise, for your partner, for your friends, whoever, if you know their common responses, then it helps you kind of uh, provide the antidote for whichever one they sort of show up with. It's so helpful when the people close to you know what yours are and can guide you through it. Like I would say, I'm in a position now where I have a lot of awareness, like I can be painfully aware of my stress response while it's happening, but I can't always. Uh, address it in time. Like I'll be like, Oh, it's happening. And it's, Oh, yep. Here we go. I can like literally watching it. Like I'm watching a movie, you know, when you're watching a horror movie and you're like, don't open that. Don't go in there. Are you fucking kidding me? Don't, what are you doing? Don't go in. And I'm like watching myself go and I'm like, Oh, great. Here we go. Okay. But having someone like, you know, there's things you can do to work with yourself to pattern interrupt and to work through that. And we can talk about that in a second, but having someone, so in my example, my partner, Chris, knows me very well. He knows my patterns very well. And I remember like a couple of years ago when we started realizing how much of a freeze response I would have sometimes, like we'd be having a normal conversation. I would get slightly triggered by, you know, he would say something with like a tone that to me maybe sounded condescending or patronizing. This is like one of our things we worked on a lot. But in the moment I would just, I would get like a full body like response to it, but then I could just not say words. And so I would just stop talking and get quiet. And he would be like, oh. he, like he would notice right away that I, I shut down. You know, I probably had kind of like a vacant look in my eyes and then he'd give me a little space. But then he'd be like, are you okay? Like, do you, what happened? Do you want to talk about it? I'd be like, I'm fine. Totally fine. You know, <laughs> I walk around like pretending like things are fine when they're clearly not. But I still don't, I was like, I still wasn't able to open my mouth and make words come out that had anything to do with the situation. So it was like, then I, or I would go into the way fun response and like, overcompensate. And if you're like a witness to somebody doing that, it's fascinating to watch because the shutdown can be so... It's like someone goes from their normal animated self to this like shell of themselves. And they it's like they check out. And like you said, they get small. They're at, energetically, they shrink down. Or when someone goes into fun and they start people pleasing, like in a really 
like it, I'd call it like aggressive people pleasing. It's super fucking annoying. When I see someone else doing that, I get such a full body like ooh response, probably because I know that I do it. Or when I notice myself doing it, and I, it's like I can watch myself doing it. I'm like, oh my God, please, that is so gross. Please stop it right now. I don't, this is not how I want to show up. This is not who I want to be. But it's like the train has already left the building. And so then to be working with someone or co- talking to someone, like a partner who kind of knows that and who can like show up with compassion instead of just getting frustrated and, and maybe triggering you even more or they shut down or they go into their stress response. So somebody who can just like, so Chris's way, I think he just sort of intuitively did it. He would see what would be happening. He'd be like, do you want to talk about your feelings right now? And I'd be like, no, yes, maybe. I don't know. Fuck you. Fine. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I would sit down and you would just like hold space, ask questions, totally non-judgmental. And I would just like talk myself through it once I, but it was like, once I could open my mouth, I was fine. I just couldn't get words to come out first. And I remember one time walking with him and I was like, how, cause he's like the opposite. And I was like, when I get frozen and I can't make words come out, I'm like, sometimes I just need a way to start the conversation. I was like, what would you do? Like, what would you say if you wanted to start, let's say a hard conversation, but you didn't know what to say. <laughs> he's so brilliant. He was like, I would say, I have something to say. And then I would just say it. And I was like, you can do that. <laughs> just like, just using simple words. Like I have something to say, like it didn't even cross my mind, but having somebody outside of yourself who can give a suggestion like that, at least for me, was so helpful in that moment. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think the beauty of when we pick partners that have different stories or different experiences or are triggered by different stuff, meaning where they are weak, I am strong and where I am weak, they are strong. And so you can kind of help each other with, you know, like my husband is not a people pleaser at all. And so he can help me a lot with my people pleasing tendencies and my fond response as well. Because yeah, you don't, when you, when you, that's your default, like you just said, I can say that, you know, like you can, like sometimes he'll help me write emails or something. And I'm, I'm like, wow, you wrote that so like, firmly and assertively and just you're not like apologizing like this is amazing you know there's this whole world out there that you don't realize exists but um one thing that I thought of while you were saying that was um the back to the choice thing of like a lot of times and this is also why there's so much shame and I'm sure we could do like a five-hour podcast just on shame but shame is so tricky with trauma is it goes kind of hand in hand like you kind of don't go through a traumatic experience and don't have some level of shame that comes out of it. And the tricky part often with trauma is why did I respond that way? Why did I handle the situation like that? Why did I let them do that to me? Why didn't I run away? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I push them off? Why didn't I stand up for myself? Why did I, um, go into fawn? Why did I go into, yeah, whatever you want? Or why didn't I say anything? Why did I just sit there, you know? And a huge, huge, huge moment for a lot of clients is when I teach them about the stress responses. And when I teach them about how the nervous system works or like polyvagal ladder, polyvagal theory, and how the body regulates uh, through the vagus nerve, when they learn more about that, then they go, oh, Wait, so in that moment when that happened, I wasn't choosing how I responded? And I'm like, no, of course you weren't. If if your brain switched into thinking and got out of just the felt experience, 
if it did that in a moment of stress, you would die. And the, the best example I always give is if you step off a curb and there's a bus that is going, you know, a million miles an hour, if you stop to think and reflect and use your cortex and to really analyze the situation, how fast is that going? People looking at me, are the shoes I'm wearing going to be, you're dead. You need to have a part of the brain that's just boom, 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 safety, 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 survival, survival. You need to have a part of the brain that's the boss. Can't be a democracy. There needs to be a dictator. There needs to be someone who just goes, yes, no, safe, not safe. And that's the amygdala in the limbic system. And so the amygdala is quick to make a decision. It's like the the input goes into the amygdala first. And go. I mean, obviously there's more parts of the brain that, you know, input goes, sensory input goes into first. But for sake of conversation, the amygdala is the sort of the boss who gets to go, it's safe or not safe. And if and it's it's binary, you're not half pregnant, it's one or the other. And so if the amygdala goes, I sense a little bit of unsafe here in your tone, in the environment, whatever, it's just, it's all or nothing. I feel safe, I feel unsafe. So as soon as you know you feel unsafe, emotionally, psychologically, physically, whatever, amygdala's on. And so if amygdala's on, we're screwed because the little dude is just obsessed with safety. And his four choices are fight, flight, freeze, or fod, which aren't the, the most evolved and aren't the greatest, but that's what he's going to go with is one of those four. So then it sees the bus whizzing past. And in a split second, you jump back or you run in front of, you know, you go quickly across the road or whatever, but we can't think about it. The body will just respond. And so that is why in stress or trauma or in those experiences, like you're saying, when you, you're in an argument and you just go shut down, you don't have a choice. It just happens. And so that's then where the big piece of compassion comes in and having compassion on myself that that's how I responded or that this is my default awareness. Ah, when I'm in a fight with someone or I'm in an argument, my tendency is to, and then you know what it is. So for a lot of partners, like in, when I talk to couples, it's saying, or parents with their children, when he storms out of the room, let him, don't chase him. Don't tell yourself a story that he's abandoning me and he hates me and he's, I'm not worthy of this conversation. And then no, he's storming out of the room because he's trying to regulate himself or his amygdala and his nervous system are trying to regulate himself. He's not choosing. He would love to be able to sit there and talk calmly with you about this, but he can't. Not that he won't, he can't. So when your kid, when your partner, whoever storms out of the room, let them, don't chase them. If you're talking to someone and they go shut down or they go blank, story you want to tell yourself is, she's giving me the silent treatment. This is what she always does. She just gives me the silent treatment. Like Chris could say that in that situation with you, right? Why is it that whenever we're arguing, you just give me the silent treatment? And in your head, you're like, I'm not, I, I just, I can't find the words, right? It's not a choice. You would love to be able to tell him everything, but your amygdala hijacks and, and makes you go, Meh. does that, does that feel accurate? No, absolutely. And I, oh man. So there's like 1000 more questions I want to ask about this. And I'm also thinking about our two other topics. I'm wondering just a little re- real-time brainstorming here. It's starting to feel like we might need to do a part two. But I'm wondering, do you feel like for, for the rest of our little bit of time today, would, <laughs> would you rather... So would you rather question? Um, would you rather briefly touch on parenting and um, on like ADHD, spicy uh, children or divergence, those two topics? Or would you rather um, save those for potentially a separate episode and just to stay on trauma a little bit longer um, and especially where I would want to go next is a little bit on like, well, how the fuck do we regulate our nervous systems? If we, if we start to have some awareness around like we're having these responses, then like, 
now what would we do? Yeah, I say we go trauma because we've done predominantly trauma. And then we do a longer one on the neurodivergent, spicy ADHD one. So we can give that more time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, because those are also such important um, topics that I think a lot of people can relate to to not rush them. So we've talked a lot about what is actually happening. We're having these uh, these stress responses. We're going into these four different uh, fight, flight, freeze, or fun. And we can work with partners who maybe has some have, a, have some awareness and can support us. We can have more awareness of what's happening so we don't just sit there and go into shame like we maybe have done our whole lives. And just like, I spent so much of my life judging myself. I knew I was a people pleaser, but I was mostly just, I saw it as like a character flaw. And I just, I was like trying to break that part of myself and make it go away. I wasn't necessarily looking at, well, why is this even happening? Where is it coming from? And then how do I, you know, compassionately un- untrain myself out of it and do something different. And so if someone is like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm marginally aware of kind of how this stuff works. And I recognize there's these four responses. I maybe have some awareness of my, what my main responses are. And, but like, now what? Like, where do I go? So we, you know, we, we, we throw around terms like regulating our nervous systems. Maybe somebody's heard that like animals do it naturally. They like have some interaction or a fight and then they just naturally shake it off. And then they go about like hunting their food again, whereas we people shove it down. So how do we, how do we not shove it down and <laughs> trap it in our bodies for the next 40 years? How do we, like, are there different, or what are the different ways that we can move forward in a healthy, helpful, um, healing way in terms of the nervous system? So I think, first of all, awareness, 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 like everything has to start with awareness. Like I always say, if we want to fix the bridge that's broken in town, you can't fix the bridge until someone says, hey, I think the bridge is broken. We got to fix it, right? Awareness. We have to first identify that this is a problem, right? Uh, so first of all, realizing, okay, so I maybe have some behaviors or ways that I roll that are actually maybe trauma responses or are maybe just, maybe not necessarily trauma responses, but just how I respond to stress. So that would be the first thing is how did how am I, how do I respond to stress? What is my go-to? So like you said, you go into freeze and um, on. So that's huge. If you can have that awareness, then you know a bit, you can, that's where then you can have, I guess, like a bit more choice because I then see that this is what's happening. Then I can communicate that. And I can say to my partner in a calm time, not in the moment, because in the moment you're flooded and you can't think straight, saying later, hey, I've noticed that or I'm learning that one of the things my brain tends to do, and I love pinning everything on the brain because it's a lot easier for us to have compassion on ourselves. I think when we separate, and this is also a big reason of why I love IFS internal family systems as a modality and separating kind of all the voices in our head. Um, There is, you know, a voice in my head or my brain makes me do this dumb thing. When we're arguing, I really want to talk to you about it. And I have these other like voices in my head. The analogy I use is a boardroom with lots of different board members who are responsible for different projects and different teams. So we have the compassion team, we have the anger team, you know, five-year-old me, 10-year-old me, um, me as a therapist, me as a wife, me as a mom, as a friend, a daughter, sister, all those things, right? And they each have their own interests and they each have their own perceptions and they each have their own agendas, right? So saying to your partner something like, in those moments, 
there's this part of me, this board member, this part that really wants to say, this is what I need. This is what I want. And then there's another part that goes, I hate you. The way that you're speaking to me reminds me of my dad. Fuck you. I hated him and I hate you, you know? And then I have this other part that wants to just be really vulnerable and tender and explain everything and let you hold me and let you, and you can just sort of share that I have all of these different competing voices in my head all at once. And it all is overwhelming. My body feels hot. My jaw clenches. And I know that that then means I'm going into shutdown mode. I am going into, I am not going to be able to stay present because it's all too much. And I, I often say to clients how I think it feels is like everybody in the boardroom starts yelling and everyone in the boardroom starts to compete for their agenda and what they want and what's important to them. On short summary sentence, they all are competing for what they deem as safety and what they want to feel safe. And so that could... And then that feeling, I think, of it getting so loud and so intense in the boardroom is then what kicks us into fighting, lighting, freezing, fawning. And so communicating to your partner, this is what it feels like for me when I go into whatever your stress response is. And then what I need. Now, this is wild. I mean, and this can take years of therapy and years of internal work of just, it's okay for me to have needs. It's okay for me to say them out loud. It's okay for someone to help try to meet them. Yes, but that can take time. And then communicating. So Chris, when I go into a um, like shutdown state and your brain might perceive it as me giving you the silent treatment or just shutting down the conversation. Um, I'm not, there is like half of the boardroom in my head is going, shut up. Why are you, stop. Why are you being quiet? We have so much to say. And then, you know, the other half of the room is going, nope, we're just cutting all the mics, you know, and explaining to him, this is what it feels like for me. So that helps him have compassion on you in the moment and then saying what I need. So what I need is I just need a minute or why don't we try next time it happens. If you just put your hand on my shoulder or rub my back, that physical connection for a lot of people, a physical touch can often deescalate and calm the body because that's a safe posture. Like that's a safe gesture for some people it can do the other thing. Don't touch me, you know, get away from me. So you just know your audience. And, and ask and, you know, ask for what would it be helpful if I gave you a hug? But a lot of times people will not, again, not be able to respond. If you say, would it be okay if I give you a hug? They don't say anything because they're shut down. So one option is he could say, I'm going to give you a hug right now. If you don't want that, you can step away. But otherwise, I'm going to come and give you a hug right now. And I use that language with a lot of parents with their kids to say, I'm going to give you a hug right now. If you don't want it, you can just take a step back. And I will understand that that means you don't want a hug. But otherwise, I'm going to come in and hug. And a lot of times, if you go into the hug for someone who's in a freeze response, they'll often melt and cry and just sort of soften and let the the tension go. Um, so it's kind of having discussions about what you need because there's no real right and wrong. Um, there's no real right and wrong. It's different for everybody. And what you need and what I need and what Chris needs and what whoever needs is going to be different. So it's just having kind of continual conversations about what helps you in those moments when you feel flooded. So like, for example, with the, the person who storms out, they'll often say to me, you know, and then my wife just follows me and it just drives me nuts because I can't handle it. And she just follows me or same with kids. They storm out of the room and the parent follows them. 
And then if we can have a conversation, okay, well, sweetheart, what do you need then in those moments when you storm out? I just need a minute. I just need like five minutes. And for you to not go all nuts and tell yourself that I'm leaving you and we're getting a divorce, I just need you to know I need a minute to calm down. Okay, cool. So what would help me though is in those moments, because I get triggered and I get into like abandonment mode, is if you just said, I need a minute to calm down. I love you. I will be back once I've calmed down. Or to children, you're not in trouble. I'm not mad. I just need a minute to calm my body and I will come back to this conversation. I just need a minute to calm my body. So kind of just learning how to find the words of what's going on for me so you don't make up stories about what's going on for me. And then me communicating what I need. I need space. I need, I need to regulate. Basically, it's like finding the language that works for you of how you say, I need to regulate. And then you do your regulation. But that even in and of itself is like, that's a whole podcast episode is what is regulation? How do I do it? And that can be from breathing to drawing to... Yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes into what does regulation even mean? But the, the easiest... Yeah. Oh, totally. So many things. The, the quickest though and the easiest is the breath and, and belly breathing, which is not deep breathing. Google it if you want to learn how to do it. But belly breathing is probably the quickest way because um, belly breathing is basically uh, opening up the diaphragm. And when you open up the diaphragm, there's this nerve called the vagus nerve that attaches from the diaphragm straight shot to the amygdala. So when you do belly breathing, that is the quickest way that you can get your amygdala down and calm down from the stress response by, yeah, like to just sort of realize you are not being attacked by a tiger right now, amygdala, even though it feels that way and you're having that perception, breathe and doing belly breathing specifically, not just deep breathing, but belly breathing, because then you open up the diaphragm straight shot amygdala goes, oh, wait a second. If we're breathing like this, if we're doing this calm breathing, that means we're not being attacked. That means we're safe. I don't have to run from this tiger. Oh, and so that then can help you calm down. That's just like the quickest, simplest kind of regulation tool. But I would say it's a bit twofold. It's getting clear on what you want and need, um, exploring that yourself, communicating that with the people around you and learning other regulation strategies, which there are a million of, to regulate your body, but stop, I think, regulating the thoughts shit, which is what most of us do of like, so like I could see, say you 10 years ago going, stop doing the quiet thing. Stop doing the quiet thing. Say something. What is wrong with you? Why are you doing That's where I would, that's where most people I think start is getting critical, right? Instead, if you started to just go into breathing and regulating your body, coming back to my body, I feel my sit bones in the chair. I feel my back against the back of the chair putting your hand on your heart, one hand on belly, both hands on heart. I'm safe. We're just having an argument about whatever. I'm safe in this room. It's not in the 80s. I'm not back in my childhood bedroom. I'm not being yelled at by my, by my parents. Okay. Regulating, regulating, and then saying, okay, this is what I need right now. But that, like that, I just gave you like five sentences, but that's like, that can take some of us years to learn how to do that. So it's not quick. So 1 million follow-up questions that I'm going to put a pin in because I know we, we need to let you go. And so what I'm, if it's okay with you, I would love to hopefully invite you back for another episode and just to leave a few open loops 
for our listeners. Um, one question that is burning that I'm going to put on the, on the back burner for now, but I will in the next episode, love to get Heidi's perspective on what is it that's happening when we get defensive? Um, also a personal thing. So I know that's one of my things, but it's also something I see so much out in the world. And I would love to, in the next episode, get her, her perspective on like what is happening and how do we pattern interrupt that and do something different? Cause uh, not a lot of helpful things happen when people are just getting defensive and, and arguing that way. And then next time to um, hopefully we will also dig into parenting and specifically parenting um, spicy children and also dig into some of the neurodivergent uh, questions and specifically ADHD um, and all things around that and probably touch more on trauma and specifically polyvagal theory, biggest nerve and more how to regulate our shit because all this stuff is very helpful, very useful and so important. Yeah, great. I love it. Defensive. Oh, that's a super fun topic. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so, so much for your time. It was lovely to see you again after 20 years or whatever it's been. And I really look forward to having you back. Um, hopefully, um, we will send lots of people your way as well. So if somebody wants to know more about you or how to reach out to you or how to um, find more of your work, where should they go? And we'll link it all in the show notes. Yeah, it's uh, HeidiRogers.com. And then my Instagram is HeidiRogers underscore. And I do lots of parenting stuff. I have a parenting course, personal course, you know, like personal development course. And there's a whole module on trauma where we go all into this. Um, that's for clinicians or professionals or for regular humans. Um, it's not sort of geared either way. Um, but yeah, I just, I think learning more about all this stuff is just so great for people because with more knowledge, you get more understanding of others and you get more knowledge of yourself and then you get more compassion and it's just, you make life a lot easier for yourself when you can understand all this stuff. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to um, share it. And I hope that it's helped people um, just develop a little bit of a better understanding of themselves or the other people around them. I'm sure that it has. I know this was already very insightful for me and I'm, I'm into this stuff. I'm studying a lot of it in my free time, but I have so many questions still. Um, and I, it, there's so many things that I think the, you know, just all of us need to know just to operate better in the world and to heal ourselves and support each other. So thank you to Heidi and to the listeners. Thank you as always for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode or found it helpful, I would love it if you could screenshot it, post it on social, you can tag me, you can tag Heidi. You can reach out um, to me on a DM if you have any questions or just email us at hello at ohio. Thank you. I love you. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.